Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am loath to even say the name of the book out loud because I have stirred up so much controversy in this election, much to my chagrin. But I have started this season with a massive fuck-up. And if you want to hear me fuck up in real time, and who wouldn't? I would encourage you to go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black and listen to what I'm calling episode zero, because I just could not think of that as the official start to the season. But the gist of it is that I promised an American title to all of you, and I thought this book and I thought the Brontes were American. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I'm literarily illiterate. So, you know, like William Tecumseh Sherman, I make an announcement and uh, I say I'm going to do something. Well, then you just march forward and you just do the thing, you know. But at the same time, like Colin Powell, you don't want to go into, into battle under false pretenses. So it's a real conundrum. So I spent, I spent the week agonizing. This is Michael Ian Black, by the way, your friend, your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist and host of Obscure, just trying to figure out what to do. And I think I've come up with a really, really elegant solution. I, 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 I think this is probably going to please everybody because the, the criteria for selecting the new book for the third season of Obscure was the same as it's always been, which is uh, a book that I have on my bookshelves that I have no interest in reading, but in, in this season, it, the, the, the promise was that it's going to be an American author. And I, I, that, was, that was the promise that I thought I was fulfilling when I selected Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. 
Uh, and then to my utter surprise, it turns out she's a Brit, you know? And that's the last thing we need is another Brit. So what do I do? Well, I've decided, you know, I've done all this work already. I mean, I took the book off the bookshelf. Uh, it seems like it would be a shame to put it back on the bookshelf. And then, I, you know, I, I asked all of you, what should I do? And uh, most of you said, you just go ahead and read Wuthering Heights. It's, it's going to be fine. And that didn't sit quite right with me. So what I've decided to do is I am going to read Wuthering Heights, but I'm going to pretend that Emily Bronte is American. I'll just pretend, you know, and, and then uh, I'll say the great American author, Emily Bronte, and you and I will know that the Bronte sisters are British, but it, we'll, just, we'll just pretend it, it's an American book. How's that? Now, when I said it was going to satisfy everybody, clearly that solution will satisfy nobody. But I do think it's kind of funny. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to read Wuthering Heights, you know, despite the fact that Emily Bronte has an umlaut over the E in Bronte. I don't know if it's always spelled that way, but it is on this Bantam Classic Edition. I'm going to crank up the old research machine here and just see how many times, you know, whether, whether it's always spelled that way, you know, or, or whether people just get a little lazy about it. Well, yeah, first thing that comes up, Bronte, and then umlaut. Doesn't seem necessary that you'd have an umlaut. Uh, in Britannica, the Encyclopedia Britannica, there is no umlaut. Poetry Foundation, there is. www.biography.com, there is. Goodreads, there is. At Brooklyn CUNY, you know, the City University of New York, Brooklyn, uh, no umlaut. So it seems like you could kind of go either way. It seems like most people use it. I'm absolutely going to use it in, when I mentally think Bronte. Oh, here's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, wait. Yeah, no, not as interesting as I thought. Uh, in the New York Times, when you'd search for the Times topic of Emily Bronte, no umlaut. But then in the articles about Emily Bronte, there are, in fact, umlauts. Oh, here's one from... T- Whoa, here's a, here's a recent one. Recent article, May 25th, 2021, a lost Bronte library surfaces. I'm going to click on that. A trove of manuscripts acquired from the Bronte family in the 19th century, all but unseen for the past century. Oh, so it's not. I see. I see. Now, this is a library that they had. It's not new material. Or is it? Oh, yes. So, look, highlights, which will be exhibited at Sotheby's from June 5th to 9th, include a handwritten manuscript of Emily Bronte's poems. You want to guess what that, what the estimate of that is going for? I'll give you a second if you want. We can even play a little game show music there if you want. I'll give you about five seconds to think about. So, uh, these are handwritten manuscript of Emily Bronte poems with pencil edits by Charlotte. What do you think the estimate on that was? Answer, $1.3 to $1.8 million. The trove also includes family letters, first editions, and other relics that offer a glimpse into life in the Bronte household, including blah, 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 blah. All right, but it's not like it's not like there's a new Bronte book that just came on the market. So don't worry about that. All right, I'm dithering a little bit. I'm dithering from wuthering because my enthusiasm is withering. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. The cover 
of this book shows a kind of fresh-faced young lass, I would guess about 18, 19 years old, her brown hair piled in a kind of a, I don't know, almost an updo, like a, almost like an Amy Winehouse thing on her head, her lips slightly agape, her bright blue eyes staring unflinchingly at the portraitist. Often these portrait illustrations have very little to do with the material contained within. So, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Ah, good. It starts right away. There's no introductory material. There's nothing. Chapter one. Let me just get this out of the way. First published, 1847. This edition from 1981. The cover painting is of Lady Hamilton as Circe from 1782. I don't care. Chapter one. So remember, this is uh, written in 1847. Emily Bronte was how old? I'm gonna have to look it up. Ah, damn it! I didn't. I, I I wanted to get into it, but let's just let's just quickly look up how old Emily Bronte was when she wrote the She was born in 1818. She wrote the thing in 1847. So she was not quite 30. Chapter 1, 1801. I've just returned from a visit to my landlord, the solitary neighbor that I shall be troubled with. This is certainly a beautiful country. In all England, See, I mean, right off the bat, she's rubbing it in my face. She's just rubbing it in my face. In all England, I do not believe that I could have fixed on a situation so completely removed from the stir of society. A perfect misanthropist's misanthropists. See, I would say misanthrope. A perfect misanthropist's heaven. And Mr. Heathcliff and I are such a suitable pair to divide the desolation between us. Is Mr. Heathcliff and the landlord, since there's just the two of them there out there in the desolation? All right. Is that, is this, are these the heights, the Wuthering Heights? A capital fellow. He little imagined how my heart warmed towards him when I beheld his black eyes withdraw so suspiciously under their brows as I rode up. And when his fingers sheltered themselves with a jealous resolution still further in his waistcoat, waistcoat, waist Coat. Oh, God. As I announced my name, Mr. Heathcliff, I said. A nod was the answer. Mr. Lockwood, your new tenant, sir, I do myself the honor of calling as soon as possible after my arrival to express the hope that I have not inconvenienced you by my perseverance in soliciting the occupation of Thrust Cross Grange. (laughs) I mean, God. Emily, you really don't want this to be American at all, do you? You really just refuse to have it be American. You called the place Thrust Cross Grange. Come on. I mean, I can't even pretend, can I? You can't even say Thrust Cross Grange of Illinois. Like, there's just there's just no place in Illinois called Thrush, Thrush Cross. You can't even say it in American. Maybe you can say it in English, but you can't say it in American. Thrush Cross Grange. Try saying thrush cross five times fast. It's nearly impossible. Thrush cross, thrush cross, thrush cross, thrush cross. God, Emily. 
I hope I have not inconvenienced you by my perseverance in soliciting the occupation of Thrush Cross Grange. I heard yesterday you had had some thoughts. Thrush Cross Grange is my own, sir, he interrupted, wincing. I should not allow anyone to inconvenience me if I could hinder it. Walk in. The walk-in was uttered with closed teeth and expressed the sentiment, go to the deuce. (laughs) I mean, I think we probably all know that means go to hell, but I might as well say it. Even the gate over which he lent manifested no sympathizing movement to the words, and I think that circumstance determined me to accept the invitation. I felt interested in a man who seemed more exaggeratedly reserved than myself. Well, you don't seem that reserved, Mr. Lockwood. I mean, here you come, striding up the uh, the Wuthering Heights there and to Thrush Cross Grange and thrusting out your hand to Mr. Heathcliff and saying, howdy doody, here I am. Let's have a party. You know, Mr. Heathcliff says, well, you know, come on in, even though he clearly doesn't mean it. And you're like, yeah, great. So, I mean, you know, how reserved are you? When he saw my horse's breast fairly pushing the barrier, he did pull out his hand to unchain it, and then suddenly preceded me up the causeway, calling as we entered the court, Joseph, take Mr. Lockwood's horse and bring up some wine. Here we have, oh, uh, wait, what is this? Who's talking? Wait, he said, okay, so Joseph, take Mr. Lockwood's horse and bring up some wine. Fine. And then somebody's saying, here we have the whole establishment of domestics, I suppose was the reflection suggested by this compound order. No wonder the grass grows up between the flags and cattle are the only hedge cutters. So who, I I don't understand who's talking. Here we have the whole establishment of domestics, I suppose, was the reflection suggested by this compound order. I mean, it sounds like he's saying this to Mr. Heathcliff, right? Sounds like Lockwood's saying this to Heathcliff, but why would you say that to him? No wonder the grass grows up between the flags and cattle are the only hedge cutters. So he's saying, you know, basically, Heathcliff has Joseph working for him and nobody else. Fine. Joseph was an elderly, nay, an old man, very old, perhaps, though hale and sinewy. The Lord help us, he soliloquized in an undertone of peevish displeasure while relieving me of my horse, looking meantime in my face so sourly that I charitably conjectured he must have need of divine aid to digest his dinner, and his pious ejaculation had no reference to my unexpected advent. So, you know, first thoughts already. I mean, as long as I'm going to be reading and commenting as I go, I suppose I should have some thoughts. First thought is, well, there's just, you know, here I thought this book is going to be all, you know, Sturm und Drang, but it's clearly a sense of humor about it, you know. Perhaps even Dickensian. When was when was Dickens writing? Let's just double check because it 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 all Dickens writing years. Let's just see what it says here. He wrote. Okay, so Dickens was already out and about writing his many books. A Christmas Carol had come out. Oliver Twist had come out. The Pickwick Papers had come out. Now it 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 feels at first blush here already a wee bit Dickensian, does it not? Now, I don't know if Dickens was singular in his style, meaning like, you know, you think about Dickens and you think about all the sort of curious people and, you know, how merrily they're described and the little jokes and everything else, um, along with, of course, 
the great tragedy. Oh, the tragedy, the terrible children and their suffering. You think about all that stuff. Now, was Dickens merely the best at that style, or did he pioneer the style that we think of when we think of Dickensian style? I don't know, but it seems to me, on first blush, again, because I'm only blushing for the first time here, my cheeks are barely pink at all, but it seems to me that one detects notes of Dickens in these pages, right off the bat. Not that, you know, you didn't, you didn't feel any Dickens on the shoulders of Thomas Hardy, for example, and certainly not on Mary Shelley, because she predated him. Anyway, uh, Wuthering Heights is the name of Mr. Heathcliff's dwelling. Okay, fine. Wuthering, okay, so now, now uh, we're going to get a d- definition of the word wuthering. Fabulous. Uh, but before we do that, you know, we're in here, we're in the library, let's take a little break, you know, here we are, season three of Obscure Wuthering Heights, back in a moment. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back, reading Wuthering Heights. We've just started. I mean, if if you're coming in late, Folks, we're just starting. We're only on page two. And we're about to learn what the word wuthering means. Wuthering being a significant provincial adjective descriptive of the atmospheric tumult to which its station is exposed in stormy weather. Hmm. Pure bracing ventilation they must have up there at all times indeed. One may guess the power of the north wind blowing over the edge by the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house, and by a range of gaunt thorns, all stretching their limbs one way, as if craving alms of the sun. Happily, the architect had foresight to build it strong. The narrow windows are deeply set in the wall, and the corners defended with large jutting stones. Okay, so, Wuthering is describing the atmospheric tumult here. 
on this location. Well, I'm just going to look up the... I'm sorry, you know, but sometimes when we start these things off, we got to get our bearings and uh, got to know what's what. So let's see what the definition of weathering is uh, characterized by strong winds. So, you know, just what they said. Used in a sentence, it's a weathering day on the moors today. It's a weathering day on the moors today. Don't go out. And if you do, put on your rubbers. It's a weathering day on the moors today. So weathering is just windy, very windy day, you know, strong wind. So that's the name of his dwelling. And I think we can assume that some strong winds are going to blow in the pages of this book, can we not? Involving Mr. Heathcliff and Mr. Lockwood and some lady named Nellie, who we haven't met yet. So the house is up there, you know, it's windy, there's there's uh, trees that are bent and thorny bushes, and it's miserable and cold and all the rest of it. I mean, we don't know that it's miserable and cold, but it gives the impression of misery and cold. Before passing the threshold, I pause to admire a quantity of grotesque carving lavished over the front, and especially about the principal door, above which, among a wilderness of crumbling griffins and shameless little boys, I detected the date 1500 and the name Hareton Earnshaw. I would have made a few comments and requested a short history of the place from the surly owner but his attitude at the door appeared to demand my speedy entrance or complete departure, and I had no desire to aggravate his impatience previous to inspecting the penetralium. One step brought us into the family sitting room without any introductory lobby or passage. They called it here the house preeminently. It includes kitchen and parlor generally, but I believe at Wuthering Heights, the kitchen is forced to retreat altogether into another quarter. At least I distinguished a chatter of tongues and a clatter of culinary utensils deep within, and I observed no signs of roasting, boiling, or baking about the huge fireplace, nor any glitter of copper saucepans and tin colanders on the walls. One end, indeed, reflected splendidly both light and heat from ranks of immense pewter dishes interspersed with silver jugs and tankards, towering row after row on a vast oak dresser to the very roof. The latter had never been underdrawn. Its entire anatomy lay bare to an inquiring eye except where a frame of wood laden with oatcakes and clusters of legs of beef, mutton, and ham concealed it. Above the chimney were sundry villainous old guns and a couple of horse pistols, and by way of ornament three gaudily painted canisters disposed along its ledge. The floor was of smooth white stone, the chairs high-backed, primitive structures painted green, one or two heavy black ones lurking in the shade. In an arch under the dresser reposed a huge liver-colored bitch pointer surrounded by a swarm of squealing puppies and other dogs haunted other recesses. Okay, so what are we to take away from this description, which is very good. I mean, it's a gorgeous description. We get a sense. Here's this big room. There's a fireplace, big fireplace there. You know, they, you just walk right into the house. There's no must, no fuss. You know, you, you take a step. There you are right in the sitting room. And, uh, but we're at the fireplace where there should be, you know, signs of cooking, there's nothing. 
except lots of dishes and jugs and tankers, row after row of them, you know, right to the very roof. So, I don't, you know, it's, it, it sounds more like, a, like a, a saloon than a home. And then there's dogs all over the place, you know, and guns and uh, legs of mutton and ham and all kinds of things just hang, hung up on the roof there. I mean, it, you know, it sounds like a bachelor pad more than anything else. This is like an 1801 bachelor pad. You know, a man of means sitting around with his dogs, his bitch pointers and his little pups and drinking from tankards and having Joseph bring up more wine. And maybe you think you're going to go out hunting, you know, and let's take, let's take these pups and go out, find ourselves a stag and then we'll tie it up and eat stag for dinner. So, okay. So, you know, Emily there, she's painting a character here. You know, we're getting, we're getting the first dabs of color on the character of Heathcliff. The apartment and furniture would have been nothing extraordinary as belonging to a homely northern farmer with a stubborn countenance and stalwart limbs set out to advantage in knee breeches and gaiters. Such an individual seated in his armchair, his mug of ale frothing on the round table before him, is to be seen in any circuit of five or six miles among these hills, if you go at the right time after dinner. But Mr. Heathcliff forms a singular contrast to his abode and style of living. He is a dark-skinned gypsy in aspect, in dress and manners, a gentleman. So, okay, so he's got dark skin, right? Like a gypsy. I mean, I never think of gypsies as particularly dark-skinned, but okay. Uh, and we call them Roma now, Emily. Now we call them the Roma, right, Roma? But he dresses and he dresses and acts like a gentleman. That is, as much a gentleman as many a country squire, rather slovenly perhaps, yet not looking amiss with his negligence because he has an erect and handsome figure, and rather morose. Possibly some people might suspect him of a degree of underbred pride. I have a sympathetic chord within that tells me it is nothing of the sort. I know by instinct his reserve springs from an aversion to showy displays of feeling, to manifestations of mutual kindliness. He'll love and hate equally under cover and esteem it a species of impertinence to be loved or hated again. No, I'm running on too fast. I bestow my own attributes over liberally on him. Mr. Heathcliff may have entirely dissimilar reasons for keeping his hand out of the way when he meets a would-be acquaintance to those which actuate me. Let me hope my constitution is almost peculiar. My dear mother used to say I should never have a comfortable home, and only last summer I proved myself perfectly unworthy of one. So I'm reminded right off the bat by Mr. Lockwood of Mr. Walton, our erstwhile Frankensteinian narrator. This book also begins... Uh, in the first person. It also begins with a man, a fairly young man in in robust health, uh, in some sort of exile, as Walton found himself in some sort of exile, though his was self-imposed. With Mr. Lockwood, we know not yet the circumstances which have taken him to Thrushcross Grange, but he just has alluded to something. Only last summer I proved myself perfectly unworthy of a comfortable home. So there has been some scandal. There has been something that has provoked his move to this desolate location in the company 
of this very strange Mr. Heathcliff. Now, Mr. Heathcliff, of course, also has a kind of exoticism to him that Frankenstein had to Walton. And we suspect that, I suspect, that Lockwood is probably also in dire need of a friend for all his protestations of being a misanthrope. It seems to me that he is eager to make the companionship of our Mr. Heathcliff. Now, I'm just wondering from a literary point of view here, when, when was the first person narrative, was that the most common form in these early days of the novel? I mean, is there a reason this was not written in the third person? I mean, yes, of course, there's a reason, but I'm wondering whether it was more common to do it this way or more common to do it Hardy's way. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I don't care that much. I, I, it's more that I'm interested in the comparisons right now between Wuthering Heights and Frankenstein. While enjoying a month of fine weather at the seacoast, I was thrown into the company of a most fascinating creature. Oh, so now he's going to say what happened last summer. I was thrown into the company of a most fascinating creature, a real goddess in my eyes, as long as she took no notice of me. I, and he's quoting here, never told my love, unquote. So this is sort of a, seems like it was a, a phrase in common usage then, never told my love vocally. Still, if looks have language, the merest idiot might have guessed I was over head and ears. She understood me at last and looked a return the sweetest of all imaginable looks. And what did I do? I confess it with shame. Shrunk icily into myself like a snail. At every glance, retired colder and farther, till finally the poor innocent was led to doubt her own senses and overwhelmed with confusion at her supposed mistake, persuaded her mama to decamp. By this curious turn of disposition, I have gained the reputation of deliberate heartlessness. How undeserved I alone can appreciate. Well, I mean, so he, he got a little crush on a gal, right? This real goddess in his eyes. He had a little crush on her and all was fine and dandy until she seemed to reciprocate. And then he freaked out. I mean, that's happened to a lot of us, hasn't it? So, I mean... When he says he should never have a comfortable home, perfectly unworthy of one, I guess this is the incident that precipitated that. In those days, you know, you look, you look twice at a girl and everybody's thinking marriage. And I guess that's what happened. Also, interestingly, as long as we're discussing comparisons, and this is maybe the most obvious one, which I, of course, overlooked because I am a fool, uh, yet again, we have a novel written by a young woman, although I guess an adult woman in, compared to Mary Shelley, but a woman written in the first person whose narrator is a man and a very similar kind of man, uh, at least so far. I took a seat at the end of the hearthstone opposite that towards which my landlord advanced and filled up an interval of silence by attempting to caress the canine mother who had left her nursery and was sneaking wolfishly to the back of my legs, her lip curled up, and her white teeth watering for a snatch. Oh dear, that's not a, that's not a pleasant animal at all. My caress provoked a long, guttural gnarl. You'd better let that dog alone, growled Mr. Oh, do you hear that? 
my own dogs letting out guttural gnarls of their own, as if to accompany me. I'm surprised it took this long for them to make their presence known. I don't know if you heard them or not. I suspect you did. But their timing, at long last, finally, and probably for the, la- for the final time, could not have been better. You'd better let that dog alone, growled Mr. Heathcliff in unison, checking fiercer demonstrations with a punch of his foot. She's not accustomed to being to be spoiled, not kept for a pet. Then, striding to a side door, he shouted again, Joseph! Joseph mumbled indistinctly in the depths of the cellar, but gave no intimation of ascending. So his master dived down to him, leaving me vis-a-vis the ruffianly bitch and a pair of grim, shaggy sheepdogs who shared with her a jealous guardianship over all my movements. Not anxious to come in contact with their fangs, I sat still. But, imagining they would scarcely understand tacit insults, I unfortunately (laughs) indulged in winking and making faces at the trio, and some turn of my physiognomy so irritated Madame that she suddenly broke into a fury and (laughs) leapt on my knees. (laughs) I flung her back and hastened to interpose the table between us. This proceeding roused the whole hive, Half a dozen four-footed fiends of various sizes and ages issued from hidden dens to the common center. I felt my heels and coat laps peculiar subjects of assault, and pairing off the larger combatants as effectually as I could with the poker, I was constrained to demand a loud assistance from some of the household in re-establishing peace. (laughs) So it's funny. I mean, the beginning anyway is funny. Man, I, you know, Martha, dogs love, dogs and babies love Martha. Dogs and babies do not care for me. And uh, just yesterday, or the day before, we were in the park. We, we, we saw some people that we had met previously. They have like a little 18-month-old girl. The girl toddled right on over to Martha, plopped herself in Martha's lap, cooed and sighed, and had a grand old time. Upon noticing me, her countenance froze in stone. She <laughs> looked at me as if she uh, would, have, could, would have struck me dead if it had been in her power. It was the most alarming sentiment to come from such a babe. And at first I thought, well, if you're going to stare at me like that, I'll stare, I'll stare you down too, miss. And, but then as, my, uh, as I hardened my eyes, I realized that that might make me look petty. So instead, I did what Lockwood did, which is I indulged in winking and making faces, which did not lighten the girl's mood at all and uh, seemed to add insults to whatever injury I had initially caused. I do not know how I had offended her, but um, offense was certainly taken. And so why don't we end there? with dogs nipping at the heels and coattails of Mr. Lockwood there in Wuthering Heights. Well, I'll say this. I'll say this. Of the three books that we've read to this point, this being the third, this has the best first two pages, you know? 
no long, you know, descriptions of the land. You know, a short description of the land. It sort of set, set, set us, set us up where we are, and you know, nothing boring. It's just getting right into it. You know, hey, I, I moved in. I'm your new neighbor. Hey, come on in. And then almost immediately, you know, he's getting attacked by dogs. Hi, you know, that's how you start a book with a dog attack. What am I reading, Jack London here? What is this? Ja- hey, Shakespeare. What is this, Jack London here? So, you know, we'll conclude having a good time with Wuthering Heights already. This tremendous American novel. We'll pick it up again on another optimistic episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu.